Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time to go into the old vault. This time we're going in for an interview. I, I want to say that this was a really interesting interview. I, I really liked it. This is the interview we had with the science writer Carl Zimmer, uh, originally published in June of 2018, about his book on heredity called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. And I thought this was a really good talk. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, just got him uh, chatting about, um, you know, his experiences writing the book, uh, you know, some of the the, the real, uh, you know, high points uh, regarding like what heredity is, how it works. And, and also, I, I remember we got him uh, talking a little bit about like, okay, what if what if you were to write your name in someone's genes? Like how long would that signature last? Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a fun conversation. And, uh, you know, it was, and it was uh, you know, an honor to get to talk to Carl Zimmer, who's, you know, such a, a big name in science communication. He's been one of my favorite science writers for years, and it, it was really cool. All right, let's jump right in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And boy, do we have a treat for you today. That's right. We're uh, we're chatting with Carl Zimmer about his new book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. This is a fantastic book. I uh, I was trying to finish it before we talked to him today, and I was up till 2 a.m. last <laughs> night getting to the very last page, uh, but it was worth it. it. It is a great book. I really highly recommend it. It's a brick that's just full of weird, interesting delights and insights about how our views of heredity have changed over the years, all of the good and all of the evil that that knowledge has been used for, and uh, and also where it's going in the future. Yeah, yeah, this it's a fascinating book. I also uh, I got to see him in conversation with uh, Maria Konnikova at World Science Festival this year, uh, in which he talked about uh, uh, the themes in the book as well. So it was a real it's a real delight to have him here on the show. And if you want to check out, she has her mother's laugh. Uh, it is available in hardback, digital, and as an audio book. So uh, we hope you enjoy our interview with him. But certainly uh, go check out his book as well uh, for just a, an in depth. Uh, riveting journey through heredity. Now, wait a minute. We should say who he is. We, I don't think we've done that. If, we, you're, if you're not familiar with Carl Zimmer, Carl, oh, yes. Carl Zimmer is a, a prolific, uh, excellent science writer. He writes for the New York Times. I think I've also seen his articles in The Atlantic and National Geographic all over the place. Uh, he's written a lot about parasites and uh, the, some of the most interesting stuff in biology is, is Carl's territory. And uh, and I really had a good time talking to him today. Yeah, some of his past books include Parasite Rex, Evolution, The Triumph of an Idea, and Microcosm. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Carl Zimmer. So Carl, what led you to write a, a book about heredity? I guess in a way I've been thinking about heredity for uh, forever, really. I mean, I, I, when I was a kid, you know, I would... Uh, think back on my ancestors that my parents told me about. And, you know, I'd wonder like, oh, wow, if, if, uh, you know, Roger Goodspeed had not sailed from England to Massachusetts in the 1630s, would I ever exist? You know, those sorts of things. And then when I became a father, I've got two teenage girls now, and, you know, that immediately brought uh, to bear just how uh, urgent and mysterious heredity can be because now there are these two people walking around who have inherited 
a lot of my genes and you know what what is it that I'm giving them you know that that suddenly becomes a very pressing uh, issue and I guess what really uh, then kind of crystallized it all for me was that in the past few years I've been doing a lot of reporting for the New York Times and elsewhere about the the real revolution happening in biology uh, allowing scientists to sequence DNA to rewrite DNA and to also look at uh, other kinds of biology that might help uh, create this thing that we call heredity. Uh, and so it just, it all kind of came together and I realized that this would be something that I really wanted to spend a couple years really exploring deeply. So you mentioned uh, the idea of the sort of personal curiosity about our ancestors and you talk in the book about how we often do family genealogies to sort of learn something about ourselves as if the seeds of who we are uh, are somehow present in our really distant ancestors. But how many generations back do you have to go before those relationships with our ancestors really don't matter all that much in terms of of genetic uh, closeness? You know, you don't have to go back that far. And that just has to do with how uh, parents pass down their DNA to their kids. You know, we each have two copies of each gene for the most part. But, uh, you know, parents only pass down one copy of a given gene to each child. And so if you repeat that process generation after generation, there's a sort of a a kind of a stochastic kind of random process that will basically lead to, you know, uh, some descendants not having any DNA at all from a particular ancestor. Um, There's only so much room in your genome and you, you can't pack in all the DNA from all your ancestors, basically. And so geneticists have done some back-of-the-envelope calculations. And if you go back, let's say, 10 generations, um, that would be like your ancestors in the 1600s, uh, maybe only about half of them have a genetic link to you. Uh, the rest, they're still your ancestors, but you cannot point to any piece of DNA in your genome and say, well, I got that from from this particular person, you know? So, um, so I, I think that actually like really shows how we have to, um, think, think bigger when it comes to heredity. It's not just some particular bit of DNA that, that gives heredity its meaning. Well, on the other side of that coin, um, could you talk a little bit about what the Yale mathematician Joseph Chang discovered about human ancestry? It seems sort of like the flip side of what you're just talking about. Yeah. I mean, the, so, you know, so much about heredity uh, is counterintuitive and almost, you know, seems to contradict itself. And that's, in a way, what makes it so fascinating. So I just told you about how if you go back a certain number of generations, you're going to encounter ancestors from whom you've inherited no DNA at all. Um, but uh, th- there's an interesting uh, feature of, of human ancestry, which is that, um, you know, people... Uh, Everybody today, uh, you know, is, shares a common ancestor with some people who lived about 5,000 years ago, roughly speaking. In other words, um, if, if you, it's just a, you can, and you can figure this out, uh, as Joseph Chang did, just by looking at genealogy as a mathematical problem. Um, just think of, think of our genealogy as a kind of a branching network. Um, the, the thing is, though, that, uh, you know, our, if you think about your family tree, um, 
and you think, well, there's me, and then you branch off to your parents, and then they branch off to their parents, and so on and so forth. Um, if you just keep branching in that simple way, you're going to end up, you know, a few thousand years back with more ancestors than there are people who have ever lived. You know, we're talking trillions of people, and that's absurd. So, so that's actually not a realistic model of your ancestry. The fact is that your aunt, all of you know, your parents are cousins. Now, either the, you know, in some cases, first cousins get married, but in other cases, they're very distant cousins. Another, what that means is that your parents share an ancestor, a common ancestor, somewhere in the past. Could be hundreds of thousands of years ago, but it doesn't matter. They have an ancestor. So what that does is it folds the family tree back in on itself. And what Joseph Chang realized was that that actually does something very interesting to human ancestry. What it means is that you do not have to go back very far to find somebody who is the common ancestor of literally everyone on Earth. Uh, and uh, it's just in the past few thousand years that you could find people like that. Um, now, of course... You know, those common ancestors, you know, they, for each of us, that that's one person or a few people out of thousands upon thousands of, of ancestors, but it's something that ties us all together. And the irony is that, you know, p people are really, uh, uh, really love to connect themselves to someone famous, you know, like, oh, did you know that I am descended from William the Conqueror? And the fact is that probably... Probably everybody of European descent is an is a descendant of William the Conqueror. Probably everybody of European descent is uh, a descendant of Charlemagne. Um, and you know, it's possible that everybody on Earth is a descendant of you know maybe uh, Cleopatra. Uh, it's like that's just the nature of human genealogy. Is that it's. A, we're all descended from kings. It's, that doesn't make anybody special. <laughs> well, as, as long as we're, we're gazing backwards uh, in time here, uh, can you tell us how ancient thinkers contemplated heredity? The weird thing is that they really didn't. <laughs> and they, at least they didn't think about heredity in the way that we do. Uh, you know, they, if you go back and you uh, you look at what Hippocrates would say or Aristotle would say. Um, this this whole model of how we inherit something you know uh, microscopic and biological that that determines how we ended up the way we are just would not compute for them. And so you know you know someone like Aristotle would say like well you know the reason that one generation looks like the previous one is just because it's the same chemistry. Um, you know of course you are going to be the uh, you're going to be the same because you know it's the same set of processes that produced a person that produced you. So what's the big deal? And, you know, the word heredity, you know, it's a very old word, but it only referred to basically inheriting stuff. Um, you know, and I'm talk not talking about genes. I'm talking about houses, uh, you know, farmland, things like that. You know, so in the Roman Empire, there are lots of rules about, you know, who got to be an heir. And that's what the word meant uh, at that point. And it's really fascinating. Like you have to you have to wait a long time before you start to even see the first glimmers of, uh, of how we think about heredity today. Um, my favorite example is in the fifteen uh, fifteen around fifteen eighty. Uh, Montaigne, this this fa famous essayist, he writes a, an essay about 
uh, his father, because Matanya now is, is starting to get older and he's developing kidney stones. And it occurs to him that his father had kidney stones at around the same age. And he basically writes this essay saying, well, what is up with that? Now, did I get these kidney stones from my father? And like, if so, how? Because, you know, when I was born, my father was young and he didn't have kidney stones. So what exactly went from him to me? Um, and you want to just, you know, shout at the page, like, it's, it's genes, it's genes. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he can't hear you. Uh, you know, like he, he, his question went fundamentally unanswered for centuries. Um, and so, yeah, so, so, uh, it's really neat to look back and, and see how, you know, our, the way we think is not how everyone always thought, you know, the way we think about heredity is, is a product of really the modern age. So did the selective breeding of animals and plants inform classical and medieval thinkers at all about the possible nature of heredity? Because it seems, it's, I mean, it, it kind of seems like people such as Aristotle or Albertus Magnus would have, would have looked at how we bred flowers, crops, and farm animals more, or at least in addition to the influence of geography or experience. You, you would think so. I, I, would, I would have thought so. But I think that's because we are in the 21st century and we look back and say, well, everyone must have thought the way we did. But there are actually, you know, whole books written, uh, you know, by Roman writers about farming, for example. Um, and you can search them. As I mean, I have sat down and, and looked through these books uh, for anything resembling what you're talking about. And it's just not there. They do not talk about, oh, well, there is some, you know, quality in this particular variety of olives that, uh, you know, if you if you if you breed it, it will pass it down to, to future generations of olive trees that it isn't there. Instead, they'll say like, well, make sure that, you know, you, you're growing it on good soil. Make sure your, your farm gets a good supply of rain. It's all about the environment. Huh. And, um, it isn't really until I would argue, it's not really until the 1700s that, uh, you start to see these farmers, these livestock breeders really take interest in this. Um, and part of it is that these European countries are all um, looking for ways to use science to uh, make their countries wealthier. And, you know, they're thinking, well, if we can, if we can produce new varieties of animals and plants, um, then we we will enrich ourselves. Uh, and there's this one breeder named uh, uh, Robert Bakewell who produces an entirely new breed of sheep just by starting to think about heredity, to think about which individuals those sheep is he going to mate together? Is he going to just only mate within his flock? Is he going to go pick out other ones from other flocks to mate um, and lo and behold, he produces this, this very successful new breed. And, you know, people like Charles Darwin look at that and say, what just happened? How did they do that? Um, and in Germany and in Central Europe, there's a big push to do the same thing with sheep, to do that with crops as well, and, uh, and to try to understand what are these rules. And one of those people who's trying to understand those rules is none other than Gregor Mendel. Um, so his, his breeding experiments you know, the, the foundation of genetics comes out of this new push to try to use heredity to uh, enrich nations.
All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump right back into the interview. And we're back. So at what point does the modern idea of heredity really emerge? Well, I'd say in the late 1800s, um, people start to talk about heredity as a scientific question. And Charles Darwin is really important in, in all of this because, you know, he comes up with this theory of evolution and it depends on heredity. In other words, um, you know, it, the only way for natural selection to work is so if parents can pass down traits to their offspring that give them some advantage in surviving and reproducing. And so it's very obvious to Darwin that, you know, that, that, uh, Heredity is this huge, glaring question in the middle of his theory, and he and he works really hard to try to find out for himself how heredity works, and he's he's very aware of a lot of the research that's going on at the time, looking to the discovery of cells and the discovery that there are little things inside of cells, but no one's quite sure what they are, um, and so he develops a, a theory that there are particles in the cells throughout our body that they somehow stream into the eggs and sperm and uh, then become something like we, the way we think of genes. Um, that doesn't pan out. You know, his cousin, Francis Galton, tries to test it by injecting blood from, uh, you know, black rabbits into white rabbits, or, you know, different colored rabbits, and seeing if that changes the color of their offspring doesn't happen. Uh, and uh, so it's not really until uh, after uh, Darwin is dead that uh, scientists start to really understand chromosomes and then rediscover Mendel, and it all clicks together, and the science that they that they call genetics is born in 1900. Uh, and, and, you know, the uh, it's really, you can see how exciting it is for the scientists at the time. William Bateson, who coined the term genetics, he, he writes at the time that, uh, you know, the, the science of heredity has been revolutionized, you know, that finally they feel like they can, they can understand heredity um, in its fundamental basis. So, so how do we go from this point of, of, of just excitement and discovery and just fall so steeply into eugenics and then ultimately the, the, the horrors of the Third Reich? Well, if, if you uh, look back, the roots of eugenics um, uh, go back pretty far. Um, you know, so uh, in, on the one hand, uh, so our modern conception of race uh, starts to develop um, as early as really the 1500s uh, or the 1400s even, where in Spain, uh, Jews are, are being considered a separate race uh, of, of people and 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 noble families have to do have to draw out genealogies to prove that they don't have any Jews in their in their ancestry. Um, otherwise, they you know they won't be able to get that good job in government or so on. And so that starts to develop this idea that that uh, groups of people are, are fundamentally different in some way that uh, is carried on from one generation to the next. Um, then uh, in in the in the not, 1800s, you start to see, uh, you know, a real concern uh, about um, poverty and crime, and and a lot of people start to to make claims that these are being carried down in certain families. You know, there are these bad families, and why is it that one generation is just as bad as the previous one? And, you know, people talk about some sort of hereditary curse that they must have, and, and the, you know, how do we 
keep that curse from being propagated. And so then when genetics gets discovered, um, a lot of actual geneticists themselves and, uh, and other, and others say, well, aha, like here is, here's the basis for what we've been talking about for decades now. Um, and you know, the word eugenics had actually been coined in 1880s by Francis Galton, uh, Darwin's cousin. And he just thought, well, you know, if intelligence is inherited, then why don't we just essentially breed people the way we breed sheep. So you just pick out the individuals who seem to have, you know, the most genius, he would call it, and then encourage them to have lots of kids. And and he had these dreams that um, would produce what he called a galaxy of genius in the future. Um, but by the time that eugenics uh, arrives in the United States and genetics emerges, it takes on a much darker cast because people say, well, what we really need to focus on is these people who have who who we believe have genes that we don't like and we want to prevent them from reproducing because that's going to drag down our country and so what are we going to do to keep them from reproducing and um that leads to sterilization and much worse so in reading your chapter about uh Henry Goddard and the origins of the American eugenics uh, movement I'm struck that this is a potential example of the dangers of bad research. Like you, you draw a really disturbing picture of how like sloppy or fraudulent work that became the basis of Henry Goddard's published writings on heredity can be viewed in some ways as contributing directly to real-world consequences like the horrors of forced sterilization in the United States or mass murder in Europe. Do you ever think when you see bad science or pseudoscience being being publicized today that it could ever lead to such nightmares that even its authors might not have imagined? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I think that we can't uh, rule out those kinds of possibilities. I mean, it might be very, very unlikely, but I mean, we, if you look at history, you can see how bad science combined with existing prejudices led to really horrific outcomes. And it wasn't that the science was somehow appropriated by uh, pseudoscientists or something. Uh, eugenics was embraced by most of the leading um, biologists of the time. Uh, and uh, there were different forms of eugenics, you know, so some people were very much sort of concerned, were quite racist and, you know, were concerned about, uh, you know, the white quote unquote race being, you know, polluted by other races. Um, but then there were progressives who thought that this was going to be part of their grand plan for making society a better, fairer place. Um, and I think it's really important to look at the, the these episodes in history to see how things go bad. Um, and I think, it, I think it's arrogant for uh, any of us to say, well, things like this could never happen again. You know, somehow we're vaccinated from from these sorts of things. But we can draw lessons from the past and we can see how um, how humble we need to be in the face of, of complexity in, in our own biology. You know, we I, you know, I think we're in like in another revolution the way we were 100 years ago. You know, 100 years ago, genetics itself was profoundly new. The gene was a new thing. Uh, now we're at the point where we're looking at 
genomes, in other words, all the genes in our in our cells, and we can we can see them down to the f- atomic detail. Um, but there's still a vast amount we do not understand about it, and um, you know we we cannot let that be an opportunity to uh, you know cart out our old biases and prejudices and say, oh, I see now science backs up what I was saying all all along about those other people. Um, We can't, we just cannot let that happen again. I think that's a really good point. And I also think you could even look at it as uh, there's a flip side to it where modern discoveries of genomics really complicate or in some senses undermine what many people have traditionally understood as the concept of race within humans, right? Yeah, so the scientific concept of race uh, developed in the, in the 1700s, and it was really um, very much spurred on by, uh, by what Europe was doing at the time. So you, Europe was in the midst of building up huge colonies, um, and uh, enslaving many, many people. There was a need for sort of legal and moral justifications for doing this. And a lot of it uh, was based on these concepts of race. So that, for example, you know, Africans were were claimed to be a a completely separate race uh, that, you know, had inherent uh, inferiority to the white race. And so therefore, slavery is okay. And you can see this again and again in in lots of lots of writing at the time. Uh, now, even in the um, early 1900s, um, there were there were indications that this kind that genetics was not aligning with these these uh, old ideas about race. <laughs> they just weren't fitting neatly um you you it was very it was it was becoming harder and harder to sort of draw any particularly bright line between groups of people i mean obviously people are different uh you know there are lots of differences in people in terms of skin color and height and shapes of faces and culture and all the rest of it but the genes were not supporting these old ideas about race and by the mid 1900s people a lot of anthropologists and geneticists were saying you know the word race is is so burdened with so much that's terrible and immoral and has so little connection with the way we're starting to understand populations let's just get abandon it um that really hasn't that really didn't happen but nevertheless like now where we can look at whole genomes um yeah the the whole thing with race now is is uh, it, it just is it's a bit one the way one geneticist put it to me is like, well, you know, like talking for us, like talking about race is like the way Greeks talked about the you know the four elements: <laughs> air, fire, water, earth. Like, you know, it. You know, Aristotle could explain all sorts of things uh, that way, and they seemed good to him. But you know, we know that there's things are much more complex than the four elements, and if you forced physicists to go back to the four elements, they'd be very unhappy. <laughs> so geneticists are saying, like, please don't make us go back to, you know, the genetic equivalent of the four elements. You know, we're, you know, they're very interested in ancestry and how populations mix together, how they become isolated and all the rest of it. But these old ideas about race and, and all the connotations of race, they don't map onto it uh, at all. So they just don't want to use it. 
Now, of course, in addition to just uh, the, the passing on of uh, genetic information, uh, we also have uh, epigenetics. And even uh, as, as you explore uh, uh, the effects of the microbiome, can, can you talk about how these have changed our definition of heredity? So in the 1800s, you know, heredity becomes a scientific question. You know, what is it that makes one generation connected to the past? Why is it that generations resemble their forerunners? Um, what, what are these connections? And uh, genetics provided a huge part of that answer, which is that, well, genes get copied and then transmitted uh, through eggs and sperm. And, uh, and so that was a huge revolution in understanding. But that doesn't mean that that is all that heredity can be. I mean, there's still the at least the logical possibility that there are other ways that each generation be, can be connected to the to the previous ones. Uh, and so in, in my book, I talk about uh, different forms of heredity that scientists are exploring. Um, and so, you know, one one very exciting possibility is what you refer to as epigenetics. And epigenetics is kind of a broad term, but Roughly speaking, what it refers to is the molecules inside our cells that control our genes, that, that allow some genes to be switched on and to produce proteins and others that are kept silent. Um, and you know, it, it's very clear that this is incredibly important to our existence. You know, it's what makes your skin cells be skin cells and your, you know, brain cells be brain cells. Like they are using different genes in the same genome. And when these cells divide, um, they, you know, a skin cell does not normally instantly become a, a neuron or, or, you know, it doesn't, you don't grow a tooth on your back of your hand. Um, and that has to do with epigenetics. Um, and so what does this have to do with heredity? Well, you know, when those cells divide, they are basically inheriting the genes and the epigenetics of their mother cell. But, uh, you know, the, the possibility arises, well, what if you pass those down to the next generation altogether, you know, through eggs and sperm? Um, and there's some evidence that that, that can happen. And what makes it especially exciting is that, you know, through our lives, experiences can change the epigenetic makeup of our cells. You know, so if you, if you get sick, if you smoke, if you experience stress, those all seem to have an influence. And so the open question is, well, how much can those experiences we have in our lives then influence future generations? Uh, I think that the, the jury is still very much out when it comes to people. Um, but in other species, especially plants, there's lots of evidence that that really is something that happens. You know, a plant goes through a drought and generations later, there's still an epigenetic mark on its descendants. So, yeah, so epigenetics is, is a, in a really exciting area. So you just alluded to some of the, the controversy about epigenetics, and I guess there are other forms of ideas of uh, non-genetic inheritance, but epigenetics in some ways still remains uh, controversial, especially in humans like you're talking about. If you're comfortable speculating and if you had to guess, how would you imagine our picture of non-genetic inheritance might change over the next 50 years or so? What's your sense? You know, I, I think that it is actually possible that we'll just find that um, human epigenetics is just not really that important. I mean, I'm actually 
I think there's reason to be kind of pessimistic um, that, you know, there are these very tantalizing studies, but they're small and they could just be the result of noise and so on. And and yet, you know, we really want epigenetics to be uh, real. Um, I mean, it, epigenetics has totally taken hold of the popular consciousness. And, you know, I, I was astonished to learn not long ago that uh, – you can take classes in epigenetic yoga, um, which, <laughs> not kidding, you can Google it. Um, and the thinking is, the claim is that, you know, that by doing this yoga, you change the epigenetic profile of your cells. And, you know, I, I, you know there are psych, psychiatrists who will offer you epigenetic analysis to basically undo the trauma that you inherited from past generations. Um, it really speaks to us in a very profound way, but I actually don't think the science is going to really uh, hold up uh, very well um, because our bi- I don't think it looks like our biology just doesn't al- really allow that to make much of a difference. But, you know, the flip side is that uh, culture um, is actually, I, I, I would argue, an incredibly important form of heredity, especially for our species. <laughs> we We pass down not just our genes to the next generation, but all of our knowledge and and beliefs and customs and so on and those those get propelled down through the generations um, in, in a very hereditary uh, way and um, and that's actually very different from other species and and I would and you know uh, in in the book I, I talk about how you could argue that civilization itself is the product of our very special form of cultural inheritance. So in talking about non-genetic inheritance, you've got potentially epigenetics, though the jury's out on that. You've got uh, you've got culture, but we should talk a little bit about microbiology. Can you tell the story of how you found out that your belly button contained bacteria only known to exist in the Mariana Trench? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I've been incredibly fascinated by the microbiome, you know, all the bacteria that live on us and in us for quite some time. And and I have been doing some reporting on it as scientists have found new ways to to explore our microbiome. And it, it used to be that you just have to scrape, uh, you know, some, you know, a little bit of, of skin or take a stool sample and take it into a lab and try to grow bacteria. And the fact is that very few of the bacteria that live on us uh, or in us enjoy being in a petri dish uh, on their own it just it makes them miserable and they don't grow so we had a very impoverished view of of this inner world until scientists were able to just say okay we're going to go into this sample and just grab out all the dna and we're going to sequence all the dna and from that we're going to figure out what is in there and that totally revolutionized study of the microbiome because now you didn't have to grow these critters you could just fish out their DNA and look at that. So it turns out we have hundreds, maybe thousands of species in our guts and on our skin and so on. And, um, and so, you know, one day at a meeting, um, I was walking past a scientist who was holding out a Q-tip and (laughs) he said, I'm doing a study on people's belly buttons. Uh, would you mind giving me some of your belly button lint, belly button lint? (laughs) And, um, I want to see what's in there, you know, and for someone like me, you don't have to ask me twice. I'm like, give me that Q-tip. So, you know, I go off into the bathroom and I, you know, fiddle around and dunk it in a little tube that they gave me and handed it back. 
And then they went off and they looked at all the DNA that was on that Q-tip. And, you know, a lot of it was my own skin cells, but then a whole lot of it was not. Um, and actually they identified 53 species, as I recall, of bacteria just in my belly button. And uh, it was amazing to, to look at uh, the information about each of those species. And so one of them is, had only, is only known from a sample at the bottom of the ocean, the Mariana Trench. Um, and there's another one that I have that's only been found in soil in Japan. I've never been to Japan. So, um, but, you know, this was entirely unsurprising to this scientist because, uh, he, you know, he was looking at... <clears throat> lots of people and was finding people with, you know, over a hundred species just in their belly button alone and from all sorts of different places. Um, so what does this have to do with heredity? Well, you know, I, I did not inherit that Mariana trench bacteria from my parents. Um, it's just, you know, we have all of this, these, these bacteria in the environment. Um, and some of them have become very well adapted to, living uh, on our bodies, um, and we just pick them up um, through our life. But it does seem that the microbiome, um, that there is some heredity to it. Um, the best examples come from certain animals that, that uh, pass down bacteria to their offspring, and these bacteria can only live inside these animals, and without those bacteria, these animals die. Cockroaches are actually a great example of this. So, you know, one reason that cockroaches are so successful is because they harbor one species of bacteria in a special little organ um, where it breaks down some of their food and gives them nutrients. Um, and these bacteria never live outside of the cockroaches. And actually, they're, they're sitting inside of cockroach cells. And then in the female cockroaches, those cells crawl over to an egg and rip open, and then the bacteria infect the eggs so that cockroaches are born completely infected with these bacteria. That's, that, to me, just seems, that's heredity. I mean, these bacteria are being passed down for millions of years from, from parents to offspring. Um, so the question now is, well, are, is that true for humans? Um, maybe not, uh, you know, in that particular way, but, um, you know, it is possible that there are a lot of species that are very much adapted to us, you know, maybe mothers are passing down certain kinds of bacteria in the birth canal or during breastfeeding. Um, and maybe the most dramatic example of all is that in all of our cells, we generate fuel with these little blobs called mitochondria, which have their own DNA in them. And the reason they have their own DNA is because they started out as bacteria. And about 2 billion years ago in our single-celled ancestors, those bacteria infected our ancestors and then took up permanent residence in there, and we cannot live without them today. So, um, so, so microbes can have a very powerful part in heredity. Do you think our expanding consciousness about the full scope of heredity from uh, like cross-generation endosymbionts or, or even to uh, chimerism should force us to re-examine our ideas about what it means to be an individual, an individual animal, and what the biological and categorical boundaries of the self really are? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, heredity does not actually 
follow a lot of the simple rules that we assume it does. Uh, and, and it, and it does bring into question what it means to be an individual because, you know, we think of he started out with some original genome in a fertilized egg. So we inherited half of that genome from each of our parents. It came together in this new combination and that's us. But, you know, that is not actually us um, and in lots of different ways. Uh, so in one way, I mean, if you actually follow the, the cells that divide in an embryo, those cells can mutate and then mutate again and mutate again. So that if you were to look at, say, any two neurons in your brain, they would be different from each other because they've acquired different mutations as, as we developed. Um, so there is no one genome in our body because we are what scientists say call us our mosaics. Um, but then that's not the not the end of it. Um, so you know we think of heredity as going down through the generations, but heredity can also come back up in, in reverse. Uh, and so one example of this is. Um, when women become pregnant, uh, cells from their fetus will circulate around in their blood. Uh, you can actually you can actually draw blood from a pregnant woman and sequence the genome of the fetus. Uh, we, we that is done on a regular basis now. Uh, after pregnancy, uh, those fetal cells may go away because of the mother's immune system is clearing them out, but Surprisingly often, uh, those cells can establish themselves in a mother's liver, her thyroid gland, even her brain. And scientists refer to uh, such people as chimeras. Um, it's after the, you know, the beast of, of Greek mythology. Uh, and you can get chimeras also from twins in the womb who are sharing uh, DNA, sharing cells. Uh, and so you can literally like have, um, you know, the, one of the first discoveries of this was a woman who uh, gave blood in the 1950s and totally baffled uh, the blood bank because she was giving two types of blood at the same time. And they said, this is not possible. You know, there must be some contamination somewhere. But it turned out that her blood was made up uh, from two individuals, herself and a twin who had died when he was uh, uh, in, in infancy. Uh, and so, you know, and this is not something that's rare. Chimerism is probably quite common among humans. And it really challenges these, these ideas that we, we tell ourselves about heredity and individuality. Uh, one of the weirdest and most interesting types of heredity you discuss in the book is the – I think you said it's eight or so lines of contagious cancer found in nature so mm -hmm. far. Can you talk a little bit about contagious cancer and does it make sense to think of this cancer as an independent animal or organism of its own type or as sort of an infection from an original animal's genome? Yeah, this is where heredity gets really weird because – you know, when when cancer arises in our bodies, uh, it, it's a it's another one of these cases of mosaicism. In other words, 
these cancer cells are gaining mutations that the rest of the body doesn't have. And uh, those mutations allow them to reproduce quickly and to be very aggressive and destructive. Now, um, cancer usually uh, you know, either is wiped out by the body or is lethal. In either case, you don't have cancer surviving beyond the life of its host. We, we think of that as being weird. <laughs> but it turns out that, uh, in fact, cancer can endure. Um, and this was um, really first discovered um, in, in, a, uh, in a case with dogs where dogs would be uh, developing um, these these tumors, uh, and it was very odd that uh, they, the, the, the cancer seemed to spread like an infectious disease. And so people were scratching their head over this, and then they realized that actually what had happened was that the cancer cells themselves were spreading from one dog to another to another, um, and so that the cancer cells were not, in fact, related to the dogs that they were in. And if you look at the DNA of this uh, cancer, it goes back to some dog that lived maybe 10,000 years ago. And it has just been spreading from dog to dog ever since. And it's been mutating along the way. And it's, and so it's this thing that, you know, it's, it's, what do you call it? I mean, I, I don't know what we could call it, but, uh, you know, some have argued that it should be just given its own species name because it's, it's this, it's this lineage of animal cells that has its own genome um, and has its own way of getting around in the world. It's, it's doing just fine. Um, so surely it deserves a name. Um, and then it turns out that in a few other cases, scientists have found it in other species. So Tasmanian devils in uh, Tasmania, they get a facial tumor because they bite each other uh, when they're fighting and they spread this cancer to each other. Um, and this this cancer has actually arisen a couple times in Tasmania just in recent decades. So it isn't something that uh, uh, only happened once a long time ago. And what's most mind-blowing is that some scientists stumbled across this yet again just in the past few years uh, in clams, in shellfish, uh, and have discovered that um, there there's contagious cancer in the ocean. Um, so you're swimming as you're swimming in the ocean you're swimming around cancer cells that are moving from host to host an infectious cancer as its own type of organism what kingdom of life would that be would it be an animal <laughs> <laughs> I, I yes it would be an animal simply because it's descended from animals yes yeah. i mean I, I would say they would have to be given you know a place in the animal kingdom but uh, and you know maybe you should just still call it like a species of you know maybe the dog cancer should be a species of dog Maybe, you know, Wild. Um, yeah. canis, canis cancer or something. I don't know. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, it's and, you know, it, when, and when you talk about sort of what makes up an animal, you know, like we, uh, what makes up, up us, you know, like we think of cancer cells as being part of ourselves. They, they originate from our own cells. But um, imagine if your body was actually made up of your own cells and then cells that came from someone 10,000 years ago. Uh, that that would be weird. Yeah. All right. Time for a quick break. Then we will be right back for more of our conversation with Carl Zimmer. All right. We're back. 
Now, we can't talk about the, the future of heredity without touching on CRISPR. How is this technology uh, affecting the, the future of human heredity? Well, you know, we, we're going to have to wait and see exactly uh, what happens, but certainly the potential is profound. Um, CRISPR is just a few years old, and it's this, it's this technology essentially to zero in on any particular bit of DNA, cut it out, and uh, if you want, insert uh, a different little stretch of DNA in there. So um, this raises the possibility of being able to uh, cure hereditary diseases by rewriting uh, the DNA in, in cells you know, to repair a faulty gene. But what some scientists have been already exploring is, well, what if you take human embryonic cells? What if you take, you know, human embryos that are just a tiny little cluster of just, you know, seven or eight cells, and you use CRISPR to rewrite their DNA? Um, Let's say you fix a hereditary disease in just this handful of just these few cells. Well, that if if you if that if a person were to develop from those cells, they they would uh, have CRISPR-altered genes throughout their whole body. And if they were to have children, they would pass on those CRISPR-altered genes as well. And um, so, you know, that, 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 these experiments have already begun uh, on, on these tiny little human embryos. And so really, you know, what, what needs to happen now is for us to have a really a kind of a global conversation about whether we want to use this or not, whether it's safe, whether it's ethical, um, how do we feel about uh, who should have access to this? Um, do we have the right to alter future generations? Um, and, you know, we, and maybe we'll feel comfortable with say, uh, you know, eradicating Huntington's disease. But what if somebody says, well, yeah, but I want, I'm using IVF and I want to just give my kids uh, this mutation that we know reduces your odds of getting Alzheimer's. Could I do that as well? And then, you know, what if you add on other things? What if you add on things that are not, don't have to do with immediately treating some hereditary disorder, but, you know, change a trait, change hair color, change height, change all these things? Uh, are, are people going to be comfortable with that? Um and this all, you know, this, this, science fiction uh, writers have had a monopoly on this conversation until now, but I think that everybody else needs to be talking about it, too. Now, as far as CRISPR-altered genes go, uh, given like a near-future scenario, would they be detectable? Would, would somebody be able to say, to, to look at an individual's genome and say, oh, well, you've had, uh, there's gene-altering evidence here? Or would a, a future civilization be able to look back at our genetic information and say, oh, well, look here, in this particular family line, we see evidence of, uh, of, of, of CRISPR alteration. That's an interesting question. Um, I, I, think you would, I think that it would be possible if the people doing the CRISPR changing um, left behind a, you know, a mark of what they were doing, you know, a little, a watermark, think of it that way, you know, some distinctive sequence of non-coding DNA nearby that basically says, hello, you know, this is, 
this this CRISPR alteration is brought to you courtesy of such and such hospital. You know, <laughs> um, I you could totally encode a message in, in DNA. People, you know, people have encoded entire books in DNA now, so you could do that. Um, but if you if somebody decided not to leave a watermark, then no, actually, I, I think it might be very difficult to um, to say, oh, well, this person descends from a, a CRISPR'd ancestor. Knowing uh, knowing tech companies, I know we'd end up with like thirty page EULA agreements in there. <laughs> sure, absolutely. But you know, the problem is that you know that over the generations, they would get they, that agreement would mutate, and uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the legal language would would change into things that the lawyers didn't have in mind. <laughs> so, given the great power that uh, that CRISPR has to uh, to allow us to alter our genes, what what do you think are the best ideas you've heard? About about how to guide it in a way that's that's fair, that's uh, going to have good outcomes and not bad. That uh, you know that the people have access to in in equitable ways. I mean, have you encountered anybody who has done the the best? What you would consider the best thinking so far on the ethics of gene alteration? You know, I, I, in the United States, the government is really just um, being very. Uh, emphatic in not wanting to really talk about these issues at all. So, uh, you know, not only is, is it not allowed to do germline modification, but you can't do any research that might lead to that. <laughs> and so, um, we're not really having a, a, a meaningful conversation in the United States yet, I think. Um, and, uh, Unfortunately, what that means is that people are going to want to go to other countries where there is no particular regulation one way or the other and do that in sort of, you know, in, um, in, you know, clinics that are, on, uh, that are hidden from view. Um, and in my book, I talk about one case where actually this has already happened. Um, a, a couple went to Mexico and an American doctor joined them there to, uh, to basically uh, replace the mitochondria in this woman's eggs with with healthy healthy ones, um, so you know there are some genetically modified people alive today. Um, there there are a few, um, but they're they're already here. Um, but uh, the I, I think that it's a better a better way to deal with this is what England is doing. So in England. This treatment called mitochondrial replacement therapy. Um, there was a, <clears throat> there was a lot of research that was done on it, um, and on, you know, using animals, using using you know eggs, human eggs, and so on. And then um, and then Parliament actually had a big full debate about it, and you know the advantages and the possible risks and the ethics and so on. And then they decided, well, we're going to allow this to happen, but it's going to happen under these rules. So, you know, you, you can't just like walk into any doctor's office and get this therapy like that. You know, we're going to re make really, uh, we're going to take real care to make sure that this is done safely and responsibly and under the right circumstances. And so now there is a university that has actually, you know, gotten permission to basically open their doors for business. Um, and I think that's the way to go. Um, because then you can, you can have these discussions and say like, you know what, as a society, we don't want, uh, 
people to be trying to make their kids more intelligent by altering their genes. We think that's a that's bad for individuals and bad for society. We're not going to allow it. Um, and that will actually happen rather than sending people to other countries to have, you know, possibly dangerous uh, treatments. Um, that's the way I think uh, things should go. Um, and you can see an example of it in England. And it would be great if, if the United States could follow suit. You know, on this show a lot, we talk about uh, how often like science fiction is sort of the playground for people working out these problems before they're dealt with in the real world. Have you encountered any any science fiction or, or fiction in general that you thought did a good job of dealing with, uh, you know, raised the interesting questions, uh, had intelligent things to say about the implications of genetic engineering in humans? Oh, yeah. I, I think that there's a long tradition of uh, genetic engineering in science fiction. Um, and, uh, and even before people really knew what genetic engineering was, you know, Brave New World is a fascinating book. Uh, even now, I mean, and it's amazing when you think how um, how much uh, 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 was dis- only discovered after the publication of the book. Um, and I, it's, I find that one quite quite prophetic. I think the problem with science fiction it comes when people think that uh, anything can happen. That when people think that um, biology uh, allows anything you can imagine to be a possibility, um, and the fact is that biology doesn't work that way. And so, you know, when when we're actually talking, you know, today about well, what are the real possibilities that CRISPR could create? Uh, I, I think we need to sort of, I think we need to make sure that we're not um, just letting our fantasies run wild. You know, some people have said like, oh, well, you'll just be able to um, CRISPR your kid and and turn them into a genius. Um, and that is not what science indicates. I mean, it, you know, intelligence is this incredibly complex uh, phenomenon that is, you know, influenced by genes. It's influenced by the environment. It's partly a, a social thing, you know, in terms of like, you know, intelligence really sort of gaining its meaning in, you know, in a society. Um, and in, you you can't just zoom in on a, on a few genes and make a tweak here and there and say, aha, like now my child is going to, you know, get into the very best colleges. It just, it does not work that way. Um, and, and I think that if people just go ahead with it anyway, um, those children are going to be born um, not just with these odd little changes to their genes, but with a whole huge set of expectations um, from their parents. You know, I spent $100,000 to change your genes to make you a genius. And why are you getting these grades in math? Uh, what's what's wrong with you? Uh, I, I just see a real, that's where I see the real dystopia emerging is, is just expecting heredity to do much more than it can possibly do uh, to, to alter ourselves. That's really interesting. And it raises another question that definitely comes up in the book, uh, which is that even when we're talking about traits that are to some large extent heritable, what are some of the reasons that it can create misunderstandings for us to talk about there being, quote, a gene for a certain trait? Yeah, we really have come to look at genes as being all powerful. And and that is a real mistake. Uh, And it's 
but it's hard to really um, get your head around the, the paradox of her- heredity in this regard. Um, and one of the examples I like to talk about is height. You know, height seems like it's simple. Like it's just it's just a number that you get off a tape measure. Like how hard could that be to understand? But you know, in in fact, um, you know, heredity is uh, this very weird mix of genes and the environment. Um, you know, gene. So height is is very what scientists say very heritable, meaning that if you look at the variation among people in, in a particular population, why are they tall? Why are they short? Uh, you can explain a lot of that because of the genes that they inherited from their parents. So tall parents tend to have tall children, short parents tend to have short children. And it's, so that means it's very heritable. Um, but that does not mean that, you know, height is somehow um, locked in and fixed. That you, It does not mean that you can actually, you know, finally predict um, the, you know, how tall a kid will be just based on their genes. Uh, in fact, we didn't even know about any of these genes until the past decade or so. Uh, and now scientists are discovering literally thousands of genes that influence height, each one in a tiny little bit. You know, I, I got my genome sequence and discovered, you know, that I had, I was very interested to find that I had one particular gene. It was the first gene that was ever linked to height in populations. And, uh, I'm I'm about an eighth of an inch taller than I would be otherwise because of the variant that I have. So, you know, it's it's almost invisible. Um, but, you know, the genetic influence just adds, is the sum of all of these different variants. Um, and yet, on top of all of that, um, you know, you can have, you know, all the tall genes you want, but if you're not getting a good diet when you're a kid and if you're facing dysentery on a regular basis, you're just not going to grow that tall because your body is going to be basically channeling all those resources to fighting disease and to, you know, fight off, defend against starvation. And, you know, on top of that, even more amazing to me is that you know, the whole world has actually gotten several inches taller over the past century because life overall is better. You know, there's more People have a better nutrition, better medicine. Um, education probably plays a role in this. Uh, and so it's not that people inherited, you know, quote-unquote tall genes. It's that they inherited a world that favors greater height. So I've got one last question that might be kind of weird, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll see what you think of it. Uh, I, I often hear hear people talking about um, their relationship with their own genome um, with their own genes in in two basic ways. One is self-identification. You know, it's like my genes are why I am like X. And so there, there's a sort of uh, I identify with my genes mentality. And then there's a kind of antagonistic kind of thing people think about with their genes. Like the, the genes are this other disembodied force that made them. And it's almost like another person that they have to negotiate with in some way. To what extent do you given all of the research you've done and, and after having written this book, when, to what extent do you feel you are your genes or that your genes are this separate other force from you as a person? That's interesting. I, yeah, I, I've heard that kind of language too, you know, and people will get their DNA sequenced and they'll discover they have a, a particular variant linked to some trait and they'll say, ah, well, that's why I do X, Y, Z. Or, or they'll, 
discover they have ancestry from a particular place and say, aha, well, that's why, that's why I like to tell stories or that's why I like to run or what have you. Um, and, and, you know, you see ads on TV for these companies like ancestry.com that play on that exact attitude towards our genes that somehow, you know, what we do in our lives is, is encapsulated in these genes that we inherit from our ancestors. Um, and then, yeah, then there are people who just want to fight against it, um, you know, and part of that sometimes feels like, you know, it's it's sort of a displaced fight they're having with their parents, you know, like, I'm not going to be like you were, you know, and, and I don't care if I inherited genes from you, I'm going to be my own person. Um, I would say in my own experience, um, you know, I, I got my genome sequenced and part of the research for this book, and, and I've really looked at it very deeply. It's been a fascinating experience, but I can't find anything in there that is quote unquote me. Mm. I, I, I think that, uh, it's just not there. You know, I, I was able to look at the genes that I inherited from Neanderthals, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. And, you know, I, I which is fascinating. But then I say to these scientists, like, okay, you've given me this catalog of Neanderthal genes. Let's talk about them. Like, uh, what, what does it mean that I inherit the, this particular, like, here's one gene. Tell me about it. And the scientists would be like, well, Hmm. It looks like no one actually knows what this gene does at all, you know, and then that you're just sort of left there with the state of the science, you know, may I found that I have a Neanderthal gene that, um, is linked to an increased risk of nosebleeds. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that, you know? Uh, and I, it also makes me wonder why Neanderthals might have nosebleeds, but that's a whole separate issue. But, you know, I, 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 I don't, I, I can't say that anything I've done <clears throat> looking at my own D- DNA has given me some deep insight about my inner self as a person, you know, as it, it's much more relevant to me to think about, you know, how my parents raised me and what my experiences were as a kid and what it has been like, you know, being married and, and, and being a father, like the lived experience matters much more to me than, um, than the details of the genome I inherited from my parents. Um, and that's, that's kind of where, where it stands for me now. All, All right. right. Uh, yeah. Well, well, thank you so much, Carl. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today and we, we appreciate you uh, taking time to speak with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. So there you have it. Thanks once again to Carl Zimmer for coming on the show and having this uh, just wonderful chat with us about uh, his new book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. Again, that's available in hardback uh, as a digital and as an audio book right now. And you can check out Carl's website, carlzimmer.com, for even more uh, about him and his projects. That's right. Go to that website. And hey, be sure to check out our website as well. It's stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all of our episodes. Uh, You'll also find links out to our various social media accounts, so you can check those out as well. I want to remind everybody, if you want to support the show, uh, one of the best things you can do is rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you want to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for a future episode or just to say hi, let us know where you listen to the show from, uh, what you think about it, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. (laughs) 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.